Welcome back to the Rainy Book Nook podcast. I'm your host, Shelby, bringing you this week's dose of all things morbid, peculiar, and curious. Today's episode is mostly all about the color blue, but it should be far from dreary if you have a curious mind. It was last year or the year before that I first heard the concept of blue being one of, if not the most, naturally unnatural color in nature. It seems clear now, the more I follow that thought, the more I realize that things in nature that are blue are far and few between in comparison to finding things in nature that are, say, green or brown. The building block for all forms of plant life, and in turn, human life, started when waterborne algae migrated to land, began a new relationship with fungi, and the rest is history. About 600 million years of it. Anyway, in my mind, the color green is synonymous with life, and it's everywhere. Blue, though, has a much different story to tell. With many colors found in nature, the pigments are made from external factors in their environment, such as things in their diet rather than being naturally produced within the organism. For example, flamingos. They are born gray, but over time turn the fiery pink color they are famous for from the presence of carotenoids in the crustacean they primarily eat. Carotenoids are a, quote, type of accessory pigment created by plants, which helps them absorb light and light energy, sorry, and convert it into chemical energy. Trees in spring and summer are green due to the overwhelming presence of green chlorophyll, but shift to an expansive variety of reds, oranges, yellows, and browns in the fall time. Chlorophyll degrades in correlation with the decrease of available light. As the leaves on the tree die, the carotenoids remain, painting hillsides in that picturesque display of vibrancy we see so often every fall. Other things in nature, such as pumpkins, carrots, corn, and canaries have carotenoids to thank for their coloration. Dr. Joe Hansen puts it like this, In nature, colors like red, orange, and yellow can be aligned with the saying, you know, you are what you eat. But, he says, the color blue is an entirely different story. If you've seen the butterfly emoji for iOS, it's supposed to be the blue morpho butterfly. This butterfly is iconic, beautiful, and so blue. Except... It's actually not blue at all. The blue morpho possesses no blue pigment. That mesmerizing shade has everything to do with the shape of the scales that cover its wings. If you zoom way in on one of their scales under a microscope, you'll see that um, the scales are coated in ridges. If you do a cross-section of that scale, now you can see that the ridges are shaped sort of like Christmas trees. It seems that the way these scales show as blue is merely a trick of light. When light enters the ridges, or the trees, some bounces off the surface, but some light continues down to the bottom layer and reflects off of that. For most colors in light, waves reflecting off of those top and bottom layers will be out of phase, which means the waves are 180 degrees apart and thus out of sync, canceled out, all that. So that light is removed from the equation. 
Blue, however, has the optimal wavelength to remain in sync, and the color actually makes it to our eyes. The Blue Morpho butterfly has perfected its coloration down to a true art. To ensure the blue color remains as pure as possible, there is a pigment on the bottom layer of the ridge scales which traps stray red and green light. Since the color doesn't occur naturally within, the scales appear not just blue but almost iridescent as the light reflects off of their wings. These are also water resistant, allowing no chance of light refraction changes which would happen if their scales were to absorb water. This advantage likely evolved since they are native to the Amazon rainforest, where it rains an average of 108 inches or 274 centimeters a year. Blue jay feathers are also not blue on their own. Looking straight through it, the color blue disappears entirely. Blue jay wings work like this. Inside of each feather bristle is an amalgamation of microscopic beads that trap all colors of light except for blue. This light trick of blue, but not blue, is actually present in several animals like peacocks, even a monkey with blue genitals. All just light refraction. Blue eyes? Blue because of the structures in your eyes, not pigments. Between six to 10,000 years ago, there took place a mutation affecting the OCA2 gene, which is a gene involved in melanin production. All humans with blue eyes can trace that trait back to a single common ancestor. Prior to the occurrence of that mutation, all humans had brown eyes. So although there are more or less no animals that we know of, be that reptiles, mammals, or otherwise on Earth that truly produce a blue pigment, there is one insect we know of that actually does. It is the olive wing butterfly. It doesn't seem to be known how they evolved that ability, but the pigment is produced using a blue bile pigment known as terabilin. Human beings produce a bluish-green bile pigment called biliverdans, which gives organs such as our liver that bluish-greenish-grayish color. Biliverdans are also seen giving some bird eggs that light blue color, some corals, and various insects. Not to go too far off the path here, but it seems worth mentioning that biliverdans are not always blue. Typically, they are turned into a yellowish pigment called bilirubin, which scientists believe plays a role in protecting the cardiovascular system. Anywho, blue rocks and minerals are blue thanks to complex crystal structures within their makeup, and sometimes due to the presence of certain metals like cobalt or copper. The blue color in copper compound sulfate is due to the light energy being used to excite electrons into a high energy state, providing that lovely electric shade of blue. It seems like the logic behind this could be simple. It is easier for things to produce molecules that absorb blue and reflect red rather than the opposite. If you look at the human visible light spectrum, blue waves are on the shorter high energy side. Red waves down on the other end of the spectrum, well, those are much more energy friendly. Low energy, longer wavelengths. When it comes to surviving in nature, if it costs a lot of energy, chances are it is not the winning evolutionary trait over one that is more efficient. 
As the animal and plant kingdoms have struggled to maintain a consistent relationship with blue, so have humans. Like I mentioned earlier, before 10,000 years ago, everybody had brown eyes. The last ice age ended about 11,000 years ago, so I don't know if there's some link there, but maybe. It goes hand in hand though, surely. Due to the underwhelming presence of blue in the natural world, that seems to have affected how early humans interacted with it, or rather didn't interact with it. But let's clear up a potential misconception. There is a common belief, which seems to have spread like wildfire, that if a culture did not have the word for the color, that they must have been colorblind to it entirely. In fact, I'll be honest, I, I read that one time and believed it almost right away. So, you know, that's the beauty of research because we learn you gotta do your research, you can't just believe the first thing you read, right? So the most common supporting angle of this belief that I come across uh, doing research on this is when Homer described the ocean as a wine-dark sea. The belief is that he was unable to recognize the color blue because of this, and in fact, a man named William Gladstone uh, from the 19th century, later became a British prime minister, uh, is probably one of the biggest reasons that people believe that ancient Greeks were colorblind. He poured over Homer, noticing no word for the color blue. Feeling emboldened by this discovery, Gladstone applied his research to other Greek texts and found the same thing. His conclusion? He believed that Greeks could only see in black and white, maybe with the addition of some shades of red. Again, it seems he only felt this way due to reading the texts of ancient people, and while I can't fault him for having a theory, and, you know, maybe the... <laughs> and before the age of the internet, I feel like there was a lot of people being very wrong about stuff, you know? And not saying that it's... that because internet is around that everything is true, obviously I just uh, <laughs> I read something and believed that, you know, because it sounded legit that it was true. But pre-internet era, I feel like it was very different for people to seek out information. And so, you know, if they felt like they were right about something, if the information they're coming across is just confirming that bias, there's, you know, uh, not as big of a pond for them to pick from and get differing opinions and stuff like that. Sometimes people were just blindly saying, nope, you know, like, I know I'm right about this, so... Maybe that's not the case with this guy, but, um, sorry, that was a probably extremely unrelated tangent. I'm just saying I'm trying not to fault him entirely just because, you know, what, what information maybe wasn't there for him to access. Don't know if that's really his fault. However, a lot of people started to believe him and a lot of people started to support that theory. And it's something that a lot of people still believe today. In fact, if you do any research on human relationship with color, you might come across this um, experiment they did with a tribe in Africa, a Nam Namibian tribe. And the experiment that you might come across will basically tell you that um, they sat a tribe of people down who seemed to not have a word for the color blue. And because of that, that they're colorblind to it. And so they sat these people down, so to speak. I don't, I actually think that this didn't happen in the way that it's shown that it happened. I think this is a retelling of it, but it said that they sat people down in front of a computer screen and had them look at this circle 
of different squares and all of them were green except for one, the blue one. And uh, it took them a really long time to distinguish which one was the blue one and which one was the green one. That part is true. Where the falsehood comes in for this experiment is that they were unable to find the blue one entirely and that it was like a pass or fail situation where they just couldn't pick the blue one. And so it did take them longer and some of them did get it wrong, but rather than them being colorblind to blue, what's actually seems to be the case is that in their language, blue things are typically described under the same word that describes green things. And so for them, they were like, well, it's all green. So again, just kind of trying to demystify that a little bit, because like I said, when I first started doing the research for this, there was a lot of repeat experiments that I saw, one of them being the Namibian tribe experiment. And I saw several articles that supported the theory of ancient Greeks being colorblind, which I just think is really like interesting because it, when you kind of look more into it, all of it breaks down and makes a lot more sense outside of that generalization. And we'll get into that, but um, I guess I'm just kind of, I was kind of shocked to see like that experiment mentioned in multiple places. And then I found it, I think I found a college website where people were discussing that experiment and kind of going into the fact that BBC very likely misreported it and just didn't provide the correct information for the experiment, making it seem like these people just didn't have like any perception of the color blue. Now, could it have been possible for them to struggle to differentiate it from one another? Sure, because you can hold up two shades of a very similar color of something and someone might struggle to differentiate that from one another, you know? So in modern times, the Western part of the world has 11 color categories in our language systems. This allows us to separate main colors and most people are able to quickly spot different shades within those colors even if you don't necessarily know the name of that shade. Most of the time, if being presented with different shades of blue and asked to name the color, the average observer, myself included, would probably just say blue. Does that mean if one is cobalt blue and the other one is baby blue that they're blind to one? Now, to be fair, those shades are maybe not the best example because I think they're quite different from one another, but what I'm trying to say is no, it. It's just that they maybe lack the ability to differentiate those shades. So doing the best with the information you have due to our complex modern language systems. Certain cultures say magenta, like we do. Other cultures don't. They have a different descriptor for that color in their language. Ancient Greek language had about four color categories, white, red, yellow, and black. They were not colorblind to all other colors, I guess, unless they had color blindness, but rather they lumped shades into those larger categories, like I mentioned with the Namibian tribe. So when Homer referred to the sea as wine dark or the sky as bronze, it's more than likely that out of the categories in his language for color that he had to choose from, these were the broader versions of a more specific shade that he was seeing, one that he just probably didn't have a word for. 
Across cultures today, you will still find some differentiation on the names of certain colors, some languages possessing more words for different shades of blues and greens and so on. One really interesting example of this is in Japanese. In the last several decades, a new shade for what you or I might call light blue has emerged. It's mizu, which translates to water. Linguists say that this isn't just a difference in translation. Mizu is its own color, not a different shade of another. Similarly, in English, certain commonly used color words struggle to find an equal place in the Japanese language. Peach is one of these. Japan has a word for peach color, referring to the color of the pale pink peach tree blossoms rather than the fruit. To describe the color of the peach fruit, the word literally translates to skin color. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is it seems like the common theme and the largest obstacle between humans' relationship with color has been the evolution of language. And as the evolution of language continues, very likely so will our ways to describe things. And not to be like that person, but with AI, who knows what's possible? Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Ow. Um, so actually very interesting, while I was learning about the different ways that people see color, I came across something called tetrachromacy. And I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but basically most people see through three different types of vision cones, blue, green, and red. Te uh, people with tetrachromacy see through, they have four different types of vision cones. People with tetrachromacy evidently can see a hundred times more colors than the average person can see and they can see like varying shades of light which is very interesting it, it seems like their spectrum is increased and I am so jealous because that sounds really cool but it also kind of sounds isolating because it seems like it would be very difficult to explain that and so when I started out this episode, I was initially going to do just the color blue. And the more I read, the kind of more different ways my mind went, and it seemed unfair to only talk about blue. Um, although I would say it was the main focus of the, quote, meat of the episode. Um, so that is all I have for today's episode. And um, I don't feel like it was enough, I'll be honest. I. I felt like there was more going into it. I felt really good about uh, the writing and whatnot, and I felt like it was gonna be a nice meaty episode, but I just seemed to go through it a lot quicker than I think I will. So that brings me to my next point, although I do feel like the organization slash structure of this episode was maybe a little off. I felt like I was quite tangential at points. Um, I'm curious how you guys feel about the length of the episodes. Do you like these kind of like 20 to 30 minute episodes? Um, do you want a little bit longer, like 30 to 45? Because I think, you know, doing weekly episodes, um, I am enjoying it, no doubt, but I do think that they're gonna be just a little bit shorter, just given the time that I have to research, write, you know, make record the episode and get it out before Tuesday every week. Um, so if you guys like that, 
that's great and I would love to keep doing this. If you are feeling like you want more out of the episodes, if, if you just feel like they're not meaty enough or they don't hit you know, the informational points that you think I should be hitting, please let me know. I'd love some feedback. I don't want to be making something that, you know, you guys feel like is subpar or that you want more out of. Um, if you do want those longer episodes, I'll probably return to a bi-weekly schedule. Um, I feel really solid about keeping a schedule now. It's just more of a matter of Kind of responding to how you guys feel about how the episodes are going and if you like this length i'm just gonna keep rocking it keep putting that effort in and putting as you know solid of an episode out as i can week to week if you want something a little more substantial and you want more deep dive you know then we can kind of go back to that other format so please let me know i i think this is where we're gonna wrap it up today Thank you for joining me here today. Uh, new episodes come out weekly, Tuesday, 8 p.m. Alaskan Standard Time. And uh, I, I hope you have a very curious week ahead of you. Do all the learning you can, and I will see you next time.